0: This morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. If you don't have your Bibles, it will be behind me on the screen in my translation. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. This is what the word of the Lord says. As they heard these things, he, being Jesus, proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. And he said to those who stood by, take the minna from him and give it to the one who has the ten minnas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minnas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. This is the word of the Lord. War and Peace is not a book many of us have probably read. All right? It's a sprawling novel with a word count of 587,287 words. Uh, just for comparison's sake, the average novel has a word count of about 80,000 words. And so in Leo Tolstoy's behemoth of a novel, the reader is introduced to a woman named Natasha Rostov. And she becomes engaged to a noble prince, Andrei Bokansky, And as one reads the book, one becomes drawn to Natasha. One begins to feel immense compassion for Natasha because she must wait a year to marry the woman, the man that he, she is engaged to. He's off at war and she must wait a year. And so throughout the book, she's waiting. And finally, the time comes for Andre to claim his bride. He is returning from war. However, On the very last night, before the prince returns, Natasha is wooed by a worthless man and almost decides to elope him instead of the prince. Now, I won't spoil how that story ends because I also have not read all of War and Peace. Uh, But the reader becomes heartbroken as they read and they see how a woman who in the absence of the king, of the king who loves her, becomes unfaithful. You see, our text for this morning, the parable Jesus gives us, is a parable dealing with how we are to respond to a physically absent king. At the time that Jesus told this parable, he had just proclaimed to Zacchaeus what we saw last week, that salvation has visited his house. And so between that and Jesus quickly approaching the holy city of Jerusalem, which was prophesied to so many times in the Old Testament about how the Messiah of the world was going to come into Jerusalem, the disciples and the crowd following him were no doubt just giddy with excitement over what was about to happen. I mean, they were just almost going to burst at the seams over how excited they were for what they anticipated the Messiah to do. And so don't miss this. Don't miss the fact that this parable is not just addressed to Jesus' disciples. Every move Jesus made was watched, examined, and every word he said was studied. People followed his every move. Like today, right? You can't go anywhere without hearing what Taylor Swift is up to, right? She eats a snack at a football game, and we know exactly what it is. It was chicken with ketchup and ranch, by the way. We Everything she does, we know about. And so in the same way, everything Jesus was doing and was saying, the crowds were watching him. And so, especially as they're getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, all eyes are on Jesus. You see, many in the crowd believed that Jesus was the Messiah, yes. But they imagined that upon his entering into Jerusalem, he would slaughter all the Romans, he would drive them through with the sword, he would sit upon the throne and establish his ultimate and final rule forever. That's what people in the crowd thought was about to happen. And so no doubt, instead of visions of sugar plums dancing in their heads like the kids in the night before Christmas, the disciples in the crowd had visions of their enemies being run through with the sword and their heads being chopped off, waiting for the Messiah to come and establish his rule. They were ready. They were prepared for the Messiah to strike down the Roman occupiers. And so with this anticipation in the air, Jesus tells a parable that is almost off the front page of their newspapers. Many scholars believe that in this parable, Jesus is indirectly referencing a historical event where after the death of Herod, Herod's son Archelaus went to Caesar to ask for the title of king. That was a thing that was common during the time of Jesus. But the problem for Archelaus, though, was that the people hated his guts. They did not want him to be king. They loathed him. And so they followed Archelaus to Rome to protest him becoming king. They thought him violent. They thought him cruel. And so the people protested to Caesar, do not let Archelaus become king. And Caesar listened. Caesar listened to the crowd, and Archelaus did not get the title of king that he so wanted. And so scholars believe this is what Jesus is indirectly referencing, And that event was surely in the minds of the hearers when Jesus begins telling a parable about a nobleman who leaves town in order to become a king, in order to receive a kingdom. And it's no question that in this context, Jesus is intending his hearers and us today to see that he is the nobleman in this parable. That in this parable, Jesus is the nobleman who is about to go off and receive the kingdom. And so the first thing we are to see, as the crowd is anticipating and predicting that Jesus is about to establish His ultimate and final rule, the first thing we are to see in Luke 19, 11-14, is that the nobleman goes off to a far country. Now, I don't know if you know this, but there were no cars in the time of Jesus. They didn't even have horse and buggies, right? So a journey in a far country was going to take a while. There was going to be a gap between the king leaving and Him coming back with the kingdom. And so Jesus is telling them, as Jesus is about to enter Jerusalem for what is the most famous week in all of human history, Jesus is reminding them that the fullness of the kingdom is not about to arrive. Jesus is not about to enter into Jerusalem, slaughter all the enemies of Israel, and sit on the throne. Yes, the kingdom has come in the person and work of Christ. We've seen that throughout the Gospel of Luke but the fullness of that kingdom will not come until much, much later. And so this nobleman in this story calls together his ten servants, and he entrusts them each with ten minas, And a mina was about three months' worth of wages. And the nobleman tells his servants, go do business in my name while I am gone. While he is off receiving the kingdom, the servants were to obey their master, were to obey the future king, and do his business. And so, if you notice in verse 14, remember, Jesus is basing this parable off what happened to Archelaus. Look at verse 14, it says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Just like Archelaus was opposed in his trying to receive the kingdom, so is this nobleman. But yet, unlike Archelaus, look at verse 15. Immediately after that, it says, when he returned, having received the kingdom. Where Archelaus failed, the event that all of Jesus' hearers would have had in mind, where he failed, this nobleman succeeds. This nobleman, who is Jesus, succeeds and gets the victory. Jesus gets his kingdom. Now what's about to happen is Jesus is going to, to demolish the enemies, Satan, death, and hell. And he is going to sit on the throne. And so, if you want to try and identify where we as Christians in 2023 are, if you're trying to figure out where we are at in the timeline, so to speak, we are living in the time between verses 14 and 15. We are living in that gap time between Jesus leaving and him coming back with the kingdom. We live in the already and not yet. And so as Jesus' people, we can be confident that unlike Archelaus, the king that this parable may have been based on, Christ has won. Christ has the kingdom. We must not confuse his tarrying, His what we perceive as delaying. We must not confuse that as a sign of failure on his part. We must not confuse that with any sort of indifference. Just like the nobleman, Christ has, has secured the victory and he reigns now and he is going to come back one day with the fullness of that kingdom there's no ifs or ands or buts about it but the certainty of his victory the certainty of Christ receiving the kingdom is not the focus of this parable the concern of this parable is this how will you live in the in between How will you live in the in-between time when Christ has ascended and when he comes back with the kingdom? How will you spend your days? There are three ways that people can live in the absence, the physical absence of the king. And those three responses are three points. They can be loyal, they can be disloyal, or they can live in rebellion. So they can be loyal, they can be disloyal, or they can live in rebellion. And so in verses 16 through 19, we see the loyal servants come before the nobleman. The nobleman has returned and the loyal servants come and present what they did. And so the first and second servants, they're found faithful. They are found to have been loyal to the king in his absence. The first servant took 10 minas and made the nobleman 10 more minas. That's a thousand percent profit. The second servant took the 10 minas and made five more right? So that's 500% profit. They were loyal. They were faithful to what the nobleman had called them to do. Now, with all this talk about money and investing, many probably have heard this text preached before to talk about investing your money wisely or using your money to help advance the gospel. Perhaps you've heard this sermon preached during a certain time of financial strain, in the life of a church, or when a ministry was wanting to build a new building or build a new facility. A new American Standard Study Bible I have actually titles this sermon, A Parable on Money Usage. Right? It can be easy for us to view this passage as Jesus talking about money, which I know we all love to hear about in church. But how we use our money is certainly the way we can apply this text. It's not the main point. If someone walks away from this parable thinking that all we have to do between Christ's ascension and His return is to give a bunch of money to the church, then they've missed the point altogether. The purpose of this parable is to encourage faithful stewardship in all areas of life. Not just with our money. You see, the servants are not the king. They are servants who are responsible for taking care of the nobleman's stuff on behalf of the noblemen. They're stewards. That's what a steward is, taking care of someone else's stuff on behalf of that person. And so the minas represent not just our modern-day currency, but they represent everything that God has given us. They represent everything that God has given us to steward and to manage in this in-between time. And so the question for us is not just will we give to the church Will we give money to the advance of the gospel? But will we be found faithful in every single thing that God has given us to steward? Will we be found faithful in loving our enemies, praying for those who persecute us, serving the poor and the vulnerable, forgiving those who have wronged us? Will we be found faithful in stewarding the time and the relationships that God has given us? And what Christ has in view here is not an obedience that is willing to obey Up to a certain point, right? That was the sin of the rich young ruler. He was willing to obey Christ until it got costly, until it meant he had to sacrifice something that he loved. That's not what the faithful servants represent. The faithful servants are those who have sworn full allegiance to Christ in every area of their life and seek to steward every single thing that God has given them for his glory and for God's purposes. To quote Mark Dever, the faithful servants are those who recognize everything they have, everything they have, is not theirs to own, but theirs to manage. The faithful servants are those who recognize everything they have is not theirs to own, but someone else's stuff to manage or to steward. And so notice the response of the nobleman to this kind of loyalty. The nobleman does not begrudgingly reward the servants, right? He's not like, all right, you did what you're supposed to do, here it is, right? He doesn't mumble, good job, and then move on, right? I used to coach Little League Baseball for a year. It was awful. We'll never do it again. But he isn't like the Little League Baseball coach that we all know who's quick to criticize but never compliments, never rewards, right? We've all seen those kind of coaches before. He's not slow to compliment and celebrate. Down in verse 14, the nobleman exclaims, The nobleman boasts in what the servant has done. He says, well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you will have authority over ten cities. See, remember, a minna is about three months' salary in the time of Christ. Ten or five minnas could not possibly buy someone even one whole city, much less ten, much less five cities. The nobleman's gift is infinitely more than these servants deserve. The gift that the king is giving is eternally more than they deserve. Did they do good works in the king's absence? Did they steward what was given to them well? Absolutely. Were they faithful to the nobleman's commands? Yes. But yet, it would have astonished them to hear what their reward was. The reward is infinitely greater than compared to the works that were done to receive it. The nobleman has shown them an amount of grace and mercy that they po- could possibly never have thought of before. So here's a modern-day illustration. Think of it like this. Every December, the Heisman Trophy right, is given out to the player in college football who has voted the most outstanding player. And every year, it's someone on our teams. right? We think the Heisman is on our team. And so typically the winners are guys who throw for like 30 touchdowns, rush for 3,000 yards, do these incredible feats that almost no one has ever done before. And yet imagine one year, there's a player on a team, like a small team, let's say Georgia Southern. Let's imagine that this guy runs the ball one time, runs the ball one time all season, and yet it scores a touchdown. And so imagine at the end of the year when he gets the Heisman. He ran the ball one time and scored one touchdown, and he got the Heisman. The reward is infinitely greater than what he did to receive it. And so in the same way, these servants get more than they possibly deserve or earned. And so at this point we ask, if the nobleman is Christ, and these servants represent loyal servants of Christ, then what does this teach us about rewards in heaven? so the answer is, not a lot. The Scriptures do speak of some sort of heavenly reward that seems to be tied to some sort of authority in the new heavens and the new earth. And the reward is given because of obedience done in the name of Christ. But like most things when it comes to heaven in the Bible, we are not given a whole lot of information. Here is all Jesus wants us to know. This is what Jesus wants us to take away about heavenly rewards in this parable. I'm going to put it in the words of a commentator. He says this, We cannot anticipate the reward, but we will be astonished by it. We cannot anticipate the reward, but we will be astonished by it. We are saved by the righteousness of Christ. And the Scriptures speak of some sort of rewards for acts of faith and obedience done in this life. And it's beyond the scope of the parable to go into all the details of what that means. But here's what we are to take away, brothers and sisters in Christ. Our God delights when we are saved and He delights in our obedience. He is not the parent who coldly demands chores to be done and then gives no thanks whatsoever. But God lavishly pours out kindness and grace upon grace. He is not a God who delights in our salvation, then crosses his arms, coldly demanding and waiting for us to get on with the whole obedience thing. He delights when his children obey. He delights and smiles when his children steward the things that he has given them to his glory. When we are faithful in stewarding what God has granted to us, we do so with the face of God shining upon us. And the simple reason the Bible doesn't give a whole lot of details about this, the reason we're not told a lot about what our rewards in heaven will look like, is because our finite human minds cannot even begin to comprehend what they are. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul says again in 2 Corinthians 4, 17, for this light momentary affliction, so notice that language, light momentary, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we steward the things that God has given us in His name, we can do so knowing that we have an indescribable reward waiting for for us, that's what it means to store up treasures for yourself, not on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but where thieves do not break in and steal. Store up your treasures in heaven. And so, this is what the faithful servants, the loyal servants of the king, get indescribable rewards. But then there's a third servant, and this third servant is actually the main focus of. This parable. The third servant approaches the nobleman, so he's disloyal. That's our second point. Disloyal. The first two were loyal servants. This one is the disloyal servant. He approaches the nobleman, and instead of doing something with the minna that he was given, he puts it in a handkerchief, and he buries it, and he does nothing with it. So not only is he unfaithful to the king, but he's careless with what he has been given. He doesn't steward what he was given at all. He buries it and walks away and does nothing with it. And his reasoning for doing this is completely illogical. Look what he says down in verse 21. For I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Now that's completely illogical because we just saw with the first two loyal servants that he gives them a reward that is infinitely more than they deserve. That the king is infinitely more gracious than they ever could imagine. And so the unfaithful servant, what he does is he condemns himself with his own words. He exposes the fact that he does not believe in who the king is. He does not trust his character. And he has misunderstood who the king is entirely. And so if the faithful servants represent faithful believers, then who does this servant represent? Does he represent those who outright reject Christ? Does he represent a genuine believer who just simply didn't steward his things well in this life? Or does he represent a believer who is losing his salvation? So we know he doesn't represent those who reject Jesus outright. That's the crowd that we're going to hear about in a few minutes. That's a crowd in verse 14. It's also not a genuine believer who is simply lazier than the other believers. Look at how the nobleman describes the servant in verse 22. He says, you wicked servant. Right. This is not a genuine believer. And also we know through the scriptures that that those who are genuinely saved cannot lose their salvation. They are saved once and for all. And so who is this third servant? And this may be crucial for some of us to hear this morning. This third servant represents those who identify with the community of the king and yet do not trust in him. This servant claims loyalty to the king in speech only. He does not live a loyal life, but in fact lives disloyally. Lives in ways that contradict the will of the king. This unfaithful servant counted himself among the servants of the king. As the servants of the king are getting their menace, he's right there with them. But he's later revealed to be unfaithful. He's later revealed to be unbelieving, like Judas will be in a few chapters on in the Gospel of Luke. And so if we want to put this in modern day terms, this third servant represents all those who have ties to the church, participate in the life of the church, and even have their name on the membership roll of the church, and yet they have never truly repented of their sins. They have never truly trusted in Christ. And so while the first two servants represent an encouragement to us, the third servant represents a warning. Connection to a Christian community is not what makes a Christian. Mere lip service to Christ does not save us. A Christian is someone who trusts in Christ as king for the forgiveness of sins, knowing that they cannot save themselves. The Christian is one who knows that God is gracious, that knows that God is kind towards repentant sinners, and that Christ saves all who pledge ultimate allegiance and devotion to Christ and to Christ alone. Mere identification with the church does not save you. Walking an aisle does not save you. The fruit of a Christian is not just having warm feelings when remembering going to church at a younger age. Right? I love the way Daryl Bach puts it. Membership in a church is not a union card to heaven. Knowing and embracing God's grace is. I'll say that again. Membership in a church is not a union card to heaven. Knowing and embracing God's grace is. And so many of you have never heard the name Edward Bancroft. Um, Bancroft was the secretary of a commission in Paris with Benjamin Franklin that was seeking to help get French support during the war for independence, right? And so he, w- he was successful in his mission. And so after the war was over, after the French helped the United States in the war, Bancroft was considered a hero, right? He was considered a great patriot who had helped America finally win its independence from England. In 1821, he passed away as a hero. And yet, it wasn't until 1891, 70 years after he died, when letters were found revealing that Bancroft had been a spy the entire time. He had been giving money, he had been giving information to the British about what they were doing. And so now, he's not remembered as a hero anymore, right? He is considered a traitor. While other American Revolution heroes have memorials, their faces on our money, and movies and HBO miniseries named after them, Bancroft has been forgotten, right? Because his mere identification with the cause of the revolution did not excuse his unfaithfulness. Just because he claimed lip service to the American cause did not mean, does not excuse his disloyalty. The unfaithful servant's mere identification with the servants of the king did not save him. And a person's mere identification with the church will not save them. Only throwing yourself upon the grace and mercy of Christ can save you. And so this servant causes us to ask, is our perceived relationship to God, is it real or is it merely formal? Have we trusted in Christ alone for the forgiveness of sins or did we simply go through religious motions all those years ago? Is our service to Christ a response of a changed and grateful heart that knows what it means to be forgiven or is our service an attempt to justify ourselves or an attempt to boost our reputation in the community? And so examine yourself like this. This is a good way to think through this. Would your coworkers be shocked to see you worshiping this morning? Would your employees be stunned to see you nod your head and take notes on all this talk about Christ being faithful? Middle schoolers, would your classmates, teammates, and friends be shocked to find out that you claim the name of Jesus? High schoolers, would those you went to homecoming with this year be surprised that you claim Christ as king? Now, I admit this parable can be dangerous because one of the great struggles in the Christian life for many is the idea that we must live a perfect life or God becomes displeased, right? And so as they hear talk, all this talk of disloyal servants, they think back to this past week and they remember an impure thought or an unkind word that they said and they now are convinced that they're in cahoots with the disloyal servants, right? If that describes you, Dear brother or sister, know this. Perfection is not never expected in the Christian life. The mark of a disloyal servant is not that they are imperfect, but that there is no sense of pursuing faithfulness in what God has given. The mark of a disloyal servant is not that they are imperfect, but that there is no sense of pursuing faithfulness, faithful stewardship in what God has given. However, for those loyal to Christ, this is a good time to examine yourself. Is there an area in your life that you are not stewarding what God has given you for His glory? Is there a relationship that God wants you to display His mercy and grace that you are refusing to do so? Is there a person at your job or someone you see at the ball field that you know needs to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that you have not done so? May we not be like this disloyal servant. This is how Kent Hughes describes a disloyal servant, as carefully folding what he has received in a cloth and stores it away. This disloyal servant today thinks, I can't be active, but I can at least be a conservative. I can preserve the Christian tradition. I can submit to a church wedding and send my children to Sunday school. I can take a Christian point of view. I can wrap my religion in my handkerchief, and conserve it. Hughes goes on to say that such a person will be judged. For those loyal in speech only, but disloyal in action, we see what Christ thinks of this through what the nobleman says. You see, the nobleman judged the faithful servants positively, but now we're going to see a negative judgment. He takes away what the unfaithful servant has, and gives it to the faithful servants. This signifies what Jesus is trying to communicate to us, is that those with no relationship to God, no trust in His goodness, even though they are somehow connected to His community, that they will end up with nothing in the end. They may be able to fool the people of God in this life, much like Bancroft fooled the Americans during the American Revolution but just like his disloyalty was exposed, there will be a day when loyalty will be rewarded and disloyalty will be exposed and punished. And what Jesus means down in verse 26 is that those with no relationship with Christ will have nothing in the end. And now I'm not good at math. I passed college algebra with a 72. But I'm pretty sure that nothing plus nothing equals nothing. Nothing. And the crowd watching this exchange is just immediately in an uproar. They start freaking out. They say, don't these other servants already have enough? That servant has 10 minas and you just gave him more. They are offended by the grace of the king. So not only does the crowd reject the king's rule, right? Down in verse 14, which says we do not want this nobleman ruling over us. So now they also reject his grace. And so the first two responses we saw were loyalty, disloyalty, and now we see rebellion. This crowd lives in rebellion. And so the unfaithful servant rejects the king and yet identifies with the king's people. But the crowd in this story rejects the noblemen outright. I mean, they don't even pretend to like the nobleman. They flat out say, we do not want this man reigning over us. And so as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, as he goes through the week leading up to his death and to his resurrection, we're going to see this attitude played out in the lives of the Pharisees. The Pharisees are constantly offended by the grace of Jesus Christ. They think it preposterous that a holy God would offer salvation to prostitutes, tax collectors, and the blind. See, grace is offensive to a graceless culture. Grace offends those who lack grace. The Pharisees hated the fact that Jesus showed grace to the outcast, to the marginalized, and to the downtrodden. That he would dare show grace to people not like them. C.S. Lewis portrays this attitude in his allegory of heaven and hell, the great divorce, which we've heard mentioned recently. And in the great divorce, readers are introduced to a character just simply called the big man. And the big man argues that he should get into heaven and not another character named Lynn because Lynn murdered somebody. So the big man says, um, I was never really religious, but I led a good life. I was honest. And so I should get into heaven and not Lynn because he murdered somebody. But Lynn, the murderer, reminds the big man that the big man was harsh, that he was aggressive and mistreated his family. But Lynn has thrown himself upon the mercy of God in grace of Christ. And so the big man hears nothing of it and storms off saying that he has a right to be rewarded for how he lived. The big man in the story hates grace. And so do many today. Now it's doubtful we would admit that, right? Not many people are going to admit, yeah, I hate it when people are shown grace. Right? I mean, And we love being shown grace. We love being forgiven when we have done wrong. And we're okay with showing grace to someone who raised their voice at us at one time or said one thing and did another that one time. But then we withhold it from others. Someone steals from us. Someone lies to us, cheats on us. And instead of working and praying that we show grace, we become like the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. Picking and choosing who gets grace. And the moment there's someone we don't like, we say, no grace for you. Right, We are like that. We withhold grace based off what someone has done to us. The unbelieving crowd hates grace. The Pharisees hate grace. And so Christians must fight against the little Pharisees that dwell in our hearts, that seek to show only grace to those whom we deem respectable, only showing grace to those people who we think deserve it. We must silence the little Pharisee that whispers in our ears, grace for me, but none for thee. You see, not only did this crowd rebel against grace, but they ultimately rebelled against the king himself. You see, the problem with the crowd wasn't just that the king showed grace. They had a problem with someone ruling over them at all. They didn't want someone telling them what to do. And is this not at the heart of so many who reject Jesus today? A refusal to submit to someone or something other than our own thoughts and feelings and desires? Aren't we not naturally selfish people? Is not the theme song of Every Heart My Way by Frank Sinatra, right? You guys ever heard that song where he says, I've lived a life that's full. I traveled each and every highway and more, much more. I did it. I did it my way. A seminary professors say that was the most ungodly song in human history. Paul says in Romans one twenty-five that they, unbelieving humanity, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Today, the creature that is so often worshiped instead of the creator is self, is our own thoughts, our own feelings, our own desires. And this punishment See, they are judged as well. The judgment that is poured out upon them, while not necessarily different from the disloyal servant, is put into much more graphic language. Look down at verse 27. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. You see, this language, let's let's be honest, causes us to be uncomfortable. Right? We don't like this idea of people being slaughtered. But Jesus uses this language to wake us up. Because if we're honest, we can fall into a spiritual slumber and forget what truly happens to those who ultimately reject the rule of Christ. This language used by our gracious and good God, displayed in the noblemen, giving an infinitely greater reward than they deserve. This language is used to show us the horrors that await those who choose to reject Christ's lordship. Remember that the crowds at this time, as Jesus is telling this parable, is remembering what happened to Archelaus and how the crowds were able to stop him from becoming king. But in this parable, the crowds are not successful. In verse 15, immediately after telling how the crowd rejected the nobleman's rule, in verse 15, it says, after having received the kingdom, Christ reigns and rules whether we acknowledge it with our earthly lives or not. He is Lord. He is King. He sits on the throne and He's coming back to give out rewards to those who have been loyal and to judge and to punish those who were disloyal. And so for those in Christ, that day will be a glorious one. For those who have been covered in the righteousness of Christ, we will receive the incomprehensible rewards that God has given to us. It will be a day of rejoicing, vindication, praise, and indescribable awe as our faith becomes sight. And yet, for the unfaithful, for the rebellious, it will be a day of great terror. It will be the day that they bow the knee to Christ and proclaim His Lordship and not theirs, and yet it will be too late. The day that our King returns will be like the moment the doors of the ark were shut. There is no longer a chance. Our God is a just God, and justice must be served. Now understand that these are not easy words to hear, The reality of unending hell for loved ones and neighbors and co-workers is not exactly a comforting thought, but yet it is reality. And Jesus uses this language to wake us up to the reality of what awaits those who reject the king's rule. And it is this reality that Jesus confronts his hearers with as he is getting ready to enter Jerusalem. This is the last teaching of Christ before he enters into the holy city and goes through what we now call Holy Week. Jesus is the rightful King, who in a week's time will get the victory over sin, death, Satan, and hell itself. He would achieve this victory not by bringing judgment like the disciples thought, but by bearing the judgment. Christ will get the victory not by bringing judgment, but by bearing the judgment for our sins on the cross. He would achieve the victory not by piercing others, but by being pierced himself for our transgressions. He would enter Jerusalem not to slaughter the Romans, but so that he would be slaughtered in the place of all who call upon him in faith. This is our king. Yes, he is a more perfectly just judge than we probably care to admit. He hates sin more than we do but yet He's also more gracious than we could ever dare dream. That no matter the egregiousness of our sin, because all of us have rejected the King's rule, we are born rejecting Christ's lordship. And despite that, when we call upon Him in faith and repentance, He hears our cries. And He covers us with His perfection. So that on that great and terrible day of judgment, when we are face-to-face with Christ the King, we will be judged not based off of our performance, but on the performance of Christ. We will enter into the gates of heaven and then receive the reward for how we have stewarded His gifts for His glory. This is the King of the universe, and He's coming back at some point. And so we have three options then while we wait. We can show we actually believe He's coming back by stewarding what He has given us, right? The reason the disloyal servant did not um, steward the gifts well is because he did not trust the King. When we live lives not stewarding things for God's glory, we're communicating to the world that we don't actually believe what Jesus said. Will we actually show that we believe He's coming back by stewarding what He has given us? Or we can show we don't actually believe that. By being loyal in speech only. Or we can continue living our lives acting like there is no king and like there is no judgment and that this is all there is. Only one way leads to abundant life, and that way is offered by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Only one way leads to the face of a smiling, cosmic king.